This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Jenny. I'm Seth. And I'm Paul. And we're talking about On the Beach, a 1957 novel by Neville Shute. Um, an end-of-the-world novel, post-apocalyptic novel, and a, a pretty damn good novel, I think. What do you guys think? It's I pretty bleak. <laughs> we love the <I>, bleak. <laughs> yes. Paul? This was, this was the first novel uh, novel I read that was set in Australia. This was years and years ago. So we, although I intellectually had known, oh, yeah, the seasons are reversed there, this was the first time I'd actually encountered it in fiction. Like, oh, wait, it's December and it's warm. Wait a minute. Hmm. Yeah, my I've brain never, had to do that too. I, and I, yeah, I intellectually knew it, but the first time I encountered it in the book, I was like, "Wait, that? Oh, yeah, yeah." You, ha- I have to do that the whole time, all the way through. I, I was going, "Okay, it's September now. Wait, September is Jan? No, it's a June. No, it's the springtime, which is ironic. Yeah. Rainy. Yeah. yeah, everything's upside down. Uh, I, I'd never read it before, but I knew it was going to be a good book somehow. Um, what I didn't know that it was originally it was serialized, and um, and then it was expanded later. It was uh, serialized in the Sunday Graphic, which is a London weekly periodical, hmm. um, and it was called The Last Days on Earth, which is a pretty good title. It is a little bit different from On the Beach, though, eh? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. On the Beach, at least according to the Wikipedia entry, is a naval term, which is appropriate for. You know, being on leave or between shifts, which, you know, kind of gives... Or retired the, from service. Retired, like, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so the admiral's on the beach, right? Yeah. Um, but but literally, there's people waiting back at home uh, for the for the ship to get back. Right. But it's surprising how much time is, is spent on the beach rather than on the boat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they would, they would skip entire... Um, journeys mm-hmm. and just kind of summarize them. I, I would have expected a little more of the story of exploring the shores and everything. Well, I think there's a, I think there's a good reason for that. And uh, I think it's because like I was reading the reviews of this book um, and it seems to be universally praised, not mm-hmm. just by um, critics, but also by readers still today. Um, and they all say the same thing about it. It's so moving and, and it's um, powerful, and nobody ever criticizes the mom for killing her baby, <laughs> um, which I think is totally reasonable. Sure, you know that I. This is not my favorite post-apocalyptic novel ever. No, or it's just not mine either. Apocalyptic. I there's a few criticisms that I actually have of it. Um, well, I don't know. There's something about that time window. I had to actually figure this out with my um, my review. And then people leaving comments and discussing it with them. I, I, you know, if it was a shorter time, like if you knew the world was ending in two days, mm-hmm. that would be a lot more interesting than uh, four months from now. So four months from now, you can't just go crazy because you'd run out of money too fast. Right. You'd kill yourself in a drug overdose too fast. Yeah. And so you have these four months. So what do you do with four months? You, well, almost everyone in the book, they just keep living their lives. <laughs> they, they <make laughs> it's not very exciting. In the, in the future, right? Keep yeah. calm and carry on. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
And it's funny, even, but, you know, some of them are more aware of this than others, but they, even the ones who are the most aware that things are going to end and the most, you know, um, resigned to it, they still slip into this, this um, oh, we'll, we'll plant these crops and they'll, they'll look great next spring. Like, even the most together characters do that. So I found that really interesting. Or yeah. the, the commander, um, he, he, he knows better than anyone, right? Yeah. He's our, basically our viewpoint character. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he, what does he do? He spends half, uh, half his time ashore looking for a pogo stick for <laughs> yeah. his daughter. She's already dead. Yeah. I know. It's, it's very symbolic. I, I think, um, I was talking to Jenny about doing an existential short story next, next year, but I think this is a very existential novel. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about w- what the purpose for you on Earth is, if there is one. Yeah, and I think its answer is nope, no purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, here we go. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. it's timeless quality. I think it it feels really relevant and not necessarily relevant, but it does have a timeless quality. I mean, it doesn't get mired down in Cold War politics, which it easily could have. Absolutely, it doesn't. Absolutely. There's very little. Um, Religious, you know, there's some, I think uh, Moira says, well, you think we'll exist on a different plane. But, you know, other than that, there's very little, like, religious philosophizing. So it's very accessible even even now. And and the author makes a point to say her childhood religion, right? Mm. Yeah. Back to her. And, And that is, it's exactly right. It's a very secular book, and the movie too is very secular. I I was surprised when I I as I said I'd read this years ago, and the only things I had remembered about it was what one line about there being births for everybody on Scorpion, and then the voyage. I had remembered nothing, practically nothing else until the except for the except for the, the ending. And then when I was listening to the audiobook, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. There's not a lot of religion. The move the movie has. Two what two frames of that preacher, and that's about it. It's mm-hmm. it, it is it is. I'm it. I'm not so sure that it, it could be w- written today that way, though. No, mm-hmm. well, but you know, the Australia of the fifties was very secular. I mean, it's more religious now than it was then because they've had some pretty major revivals going on there, but. Even when I was there in the 90s, it was considered a very secular country. Hmm. They all descended from prisoners. Sure. Especially still in the 50s, you would have really felt that, I think. And even the American who goes to church regularly, he's not going to church to pray. It's like when he fantasizes about his family. It was so, those were sad, <laughs> sad scenes. Yeah, they sure yeah. were. It's pretty powerful, pretty powerful um, message that is, and this is like with Earth Abides. I think this this book it uses the form of the novel to mm-hmm. really, sh- uh, uh, like I, w- I want to say, hammer home its its point. But actually, it's like shaping its point, like you're a piece of metal, and it's bending you right into the shape that it wants you to to be in. Because we get the same things again and again, right? What what do we see? We see. People racing. They're racing their boats. They're racing their cars. Mm-hmm. We, we see people planning for things that are years ahead. How much talk do we get about the garden? Yeah. Right? It's like endless, you know, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And, and the shopping, again and again, he goes out looking for, for the things. And it becomes a very central point is, you know, fruitless activity, pointless activity. And, and it's... It's like, well, they know they're crazy. And even yeah. they 
out. Oh, he, he's crazy. Is that is it me or is everyone around here crazy? Well, you're doing exactly the same thing. And it, it's really interesting because normally cognitive dissonance is something that we we frown upon. We say, oh, my God, this guy doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's he's not thinking it through. Well, mm-hmm. that will shoot it through. Yeah. And he came up with uh, basically the only, I think, the only way to, to to deal with it is, yeah, there's no point to any of it, but um, I'm going to show you um, what we would do anyways, or what we are doing anyways, I guess. You know, you were mentioning uh, uh, existential stories, and this, for some reason, made me think of, and this is obviously not nearly as bleak, but it made me think of um, Samuel Beckett's Endgame um, in some ways. Um, the, the, these characters, um, it's it's pretty much you don't know whether the world's ended or not. It's it's very kind of claustrophobic. These four people are trapped in a room essentially, um, hmm. and they're really pondering questions of is life cyclical. Um, it's you know it's very it's very existential. And it was also published in 1957. So you know I wonder if they were having sort of similar preoccupations or. Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, dropping the bomb like dropped a bomb psychologically on on people as well. And I mean, if you look at the boom in nuclear war books, it comes right after World War II, and it 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 has sort of the echoes have sort of died down. You know, we don't have this fear of of the bomb anymore. It's still mm-hmm. there. Um, but what, why should we read a book about you know the human humankind? killing itself with a bomb um, after we don't have that fear anymore, at least. No, no, the general population doesn't worry about it daily mm-hmm. like we used to. Um, I think it, that that's why this book is timeless. Is It's not really about the bombs per se, mm-hmm. it, at least in the theme. It's about, it's about uh, just humankind. Humankind's not going to live forever. Sure. Right? And and that's the difference between you know I mean this would be a good book for cancer cancer patients right hmm. because you're going to die in yeah. six months reading this book oh these people are going to die in six months how do they deal with it well they just go about their daily activities and you know they 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 yeah keep calm and carry on but also um, it's not just an individual dying I mean it's bigger than that mm-hmm. we always think of our legacy we think of our species as a part of us. And and they're doing that too, you know. That that that's the one key point that I think really makes this science fictiony um, more than it's just being said in the then future mm-hmm. is that it's got that same theme as in uh, Arthur C. Clarke's The Star, where a civilization has been destroyed um, and they leave a legacy to be found by aliens, you know, from Earth. Mm-hmm. It, there's something there's something very deep about this book's themes that I think you know, has entered all the people who've read it. Yeah, I think so too. And you're right. I mean, it could easily be translated into say global warming or those sort of, you know, climate disasters, which are sort of in vogue yeah. now. Yeah. As the sea rises, you know, we all say, Oh, where are we? we go to the highest peaks. Right? Yeah. 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 The, the, the actual, the actual mechanics of the end of the world are very abstract. I don't think that nuclear dust would, and fallout would happen that that even pattern. It's just a way of setting up a clock and That's seeing right. what seeing what seeing what the characters do. I mean, mm-hmm. I was I was thinking of, I was thinking, and it's also a very what's the word I'm looking for? A very sterile sort of 
death of humanity. As you said, mm-hmm. stuff gets left behind. I mean, we don't see a lot of wreckage. I mean, they see the Golden Gate down and a few other mm-hmm. places yeah. wrecked, but mo- mostly... It's How many dead like a, bodies at all? No. Right. Yeah, it, it's a very clean catastrophe, a very clean end to the species. I mean, our stuff is left behind to rotten and decay, unless, except for the stuff that they're going to put in those glass bricks up on the mountain. But yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, otherwise, there's, otherwise, there's not a wreckage. Well, that, that, that also also firmly puts it into science fiction. That's that's a science fictional concept to that's put right. something, mm-hmm. some, locking something there for the for a future species to find. So that's sort of I was I was wondering, is this really science fiction? Mm-hmm. And, and when I, when I came across that, I said, yeah, that's that's a science fictional concept. That's solid enough that it moves it firmly into the into these genre for me. Isn't it funny? Uh, I think it's really an attitude. It's not, it's not really, um, it's, it's, it, Neville Shute doesn't, he's not a science fiction writer. We don't think of him that way. He, he was an engineer. His books are about airplanes and, and, you know, uh, t- towns like Alice, and, <laughs> right? They're, they're um, about the earth of his time. And yet, in this book, it's very, um, it's still of its time in the various adaptations that I've heard three or seen. And I, I heard the uh, 2008 adaptation right before we started here, oh, <laughs> just wow. finished it. And that was a radio BBC one. And they said it in the 1950s and pretty, pretty much kept the attitude of the book. Um, in the 1959 movie uh, with um, Gregory Peck and uh, Ava Gardner, um, and oh, and Anthony Perkins playing the young husband. Oh, I, that was hilarious! I couldn't stop thinking about about his. He was gay, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, the actor. So I couldn't stop thinking about um, him. You know, caressing his his wife and and then getting pills to kill her. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, well, you know, that was not really in the director's intention or anything like who did, that. Who did Gregory Peck play? Did he play Dwight? He played Dwight. Yeah. And Ava Gardner, who was really uh, much too old for the the character, and as as was Gregory Peck, mm-hmm. I, I think everybody in the the movie was older, except for Anthony Perkins, mm-hmm. than than in the book. Um, it, it, it there seemed to be like a um, it, it was much more melodramatic mm-hmm. as on screen than it was. In the, there's something very strange about the novel's form that can't be it can't show the inner attitude of things like a, a book a, uh, a TV or um, movie can't show the inner attitude right. of, a, of a novel and so that I didn't like that 1959 adaptation I'd seen it before so I, I switched over to the 2000 um, TV movie uh, which is actually a mini series hmm. and that had Brian Brown who's a very Australian guy um, and a few other uh, actors in it, and and that one they updated it to the, uh, I guess the the year two thousand six is when it was set, so six years in the future when it came out, and um, the attitudes were all updated too, which I thought was interesting, and it it became much more like a modern version of it, and I thought that was quite interesting because what do you see in the is that is that the the message that they're chasing after isn't uh, waters and connect. It's much more um, hopeful <laughs> and it changes the whole book or uh, sorry, changes the whole story. And 
though, when they go up to Waters and Connect, they have no hope mm-hmm. that it's going to be anything, right? But the message in the movie is don't despair, which is a completely opposite of what Neville Shute is going for, right? Yeah. Neville Shute's saying there's no point in any of this. We all know we're going to die. There's no point. Um, we're going to go uh, look at some, take some measurements and find out what's going on there. But there's no hope. And and in the movie, it's like a race against the clock to try and see, you know, oh, maybe we could survive in the in the north or, yeah. you know. You know, there's all these this hope, and then the captain offers, you know, make sure that his crew is all going to get secured in any plan to save the humanity. And it's like, I, I think that's so interesting about this book is that it's got this, it's, it's got this attitude that there's nothing we can do, and in, if you look at actually what happens, nothing actually they don't change a goddamn thing. Nope. They can't save themselves. There's not a fucking thing they can do. And but you know, don't I kept, you know, rail against it like we want them to. I just kept thinking of that 2012 movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where everyone saved humanity with yep. a really big arcs, That's and th- they they put together this plan somewhat at the last minute, even though the arcs were hiding in the, the hills. Um, and so I was like, well, they have these submarines, and I know it's really depressing to live on them but clearly they're able to sustain themselves for at least a month at a time i just kept thinking well aren't they even going to explore something like that clearly the navy's still paying salaries to people mm-hmm. you know they should be problem solving <laughs> well i think i think you know we do come up with those thoughts like if they can stay under for six months maybe they could just load you know load a uh, a a few more submarines with supplies and last the 20 years that it'll take for the radiation to die down, you know, yeah, just a few people. Right. Find yeah. a plan. Like they just didn't have a way to figure out de- decontamination within the submarine. So find a way, you know, and then figure out a way to get people in and out with their suits on, decontaminate them and move from one place to the other. Maybe you find a pocket somewhere, maybe up in Iceland where the, somehow the radiation hasn't spread or something. And that's why everyone has fallout shelters in their basements in the 1960s. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Duck and cover. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it was not realistic, right? Build a silo. No. Oh, boy. It, 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 okay, go to, go to um, uh, what, what's that place in Ukraine that's, that's still uninhabited? Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Chernobyl, right? How long has Chernobyl been... <laughs> Evacuated a long time, yeah. yeah. And that, yeah, it's so hot. That's still that's right. If you were living in Chernobyl and you went down in your basement and came out, you might think you're okay, but you're gonna get cancer like a motherfucker. <laughs> like that guy who's rowing rowing around fishing. That's right oh, yeah. for his last day on Earth. Yeah, but at least he did something. At least he went back somewhere. I think they yeah. all. The other people are like, right? eh. no, they all do that. I mean, the captain goes down with the ship. There's no point to it. It's it's symbol. It's it's for him. It's it's their symbolic. You know, he says, "Make a note that the commander was who's who's the fucking note for, right?" Yeah. I mean, they don't even talk about aliens. They in when they're talking about those glass bricks, they talk about any other inhabitants. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where they're going to come from. Well, and I, you know, this is why this is how I would be in the end. 
And I I guess I can kind of understand the whole garden planning thing because (laughs) I don't know how you would ever come to terms with this idea that you're going to die and there's nothing you can do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they don't come to very good terms with that. I I like the guy who's in the... He's in the club and he's mad that they have too much port. <laughs> he's, we got to drink more of this stuff. The planning he's gone way overboard. The rabbits? The rabbits are going to survive us? That's right. <laughs> yes, the rabbits. That garden's going to make good food for the rabbits for a year. Ah, yep. I see. Yeah, and then the rabbits are going to die like everything else. Yep, yeah. I, I, was, in, I was envisioning, uh, maybe in my fever, uh, that the the rabbits were going to mutate and become human humanoids and and then wonder about these funny little creatures that used to exist on the earth. And then we have water shipped down. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's what the sequel is. Hmm. Water shipped down across the pet cemetery. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> dark Jenny, dark. I, okay, I, I have another question. Go ahead, Jenny. And it's going to be kind of gross. I'm sorry, but. Would you really wait until you had bloody diarrhea to kill yourself? No, absolutely not. I mean, if you know you're going to die, no, that's what and the pills it's are. been proven yeah. that everyone is dying. Oh, yeah. I really, really bothered me. And I guess part of it just has to do with not being able to really understand it until you have it. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much proof do you need, I guess, is the question. And especially when you get too tired, the exhaustion hits you to the extent where you can't even clean it up and you're just sort of lying in it. Ugh, but yeah, no. That's the awful way to go. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> It's, it's right a pro-euthanasia book. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. And right near the beginning, you know, the wife, uh, is the first scene we get is, is with the wife and the, the child. And mm-hmm. they're, the, you know, the, it, it was cruel of Neville Shute to put in a baby, right? Yeah. There doesn't need a baby. Of course there needs to be a baby. There doesn't need to be a baby, we think. That's me. <laughs> well, but that's the point. Right? Uh, we assume that the baby was birthed before the war happened, but do we, we, do we know how old if we the roll baby it back, is? I don't think that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The baby's not that no. old, so I always it's in the first that. year because she's teething, and he's like going through the the wife's like, "Well, oh, I have this book of the first year of a baby, and they say this is normal." Mm-hmm. Right. Hmm. So, so is this a movie that's? I mean, did they even consider? I, I have no idea what abortion laws were like in the fifties in Australia. Did they even consider that? Was that never an issue? Is that something that's one of those unspoken assumptions that they never considered? It's not. It's not mentioned at all in the book. Yeah. Well, the uh, wife doesn't even want to hear that. That's right. She doesn't. Yeah. She brushes off every time he tries to bring anything close to people dying up. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure she wouldn't have even entertain that idea yeah. there was a man on the radio and he was saying it wasn't that bad and maybe that the, the radiation wasn't going to come here at all around the country the we're gonna be okay. right we have those guys on the radio all the time <laughs> or the tv i guess um but maybe the power lines just went down <laughs> yeah. one of the things i think was interesting is it, it seems like the point the one of the things that wasn't exactly on his main theme and i thought it was interesting is neville shoot said Somewhere in the book, he says, I guess it's rather near the end. He said something like, ah, if, it, if I guess we could have done something with the newspapers right, to, <laughs> a, to avoid the war. Yeah, if people have been the better first, educated yeah. or you know, something yeah. like that. And yeah. If we didn't have these damn newspapers the, the way they were, if we had just been okay. And then the, I, think the, I think it was um, 
uh, Moirash that says, um, I rather like not having the newspapers now. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, <laughs> it's almost the line for us, right? Is that the newspapers don't do the news anymore. Right. And I had forgotten about the regression in technology in the novel. That that they have electricity, but most cars are gone except for the end. You have the horse-drawn buggy. Mm-hmm. It's a buggy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you guys ever read the the Waveries by Frederick Brown? No, but I mm-hmm. want to read that. It, it's a it's a real it's a really good story. And as I was hearing about the about the basic regression, I was thinking this is sort of like the Waveries. Technology has been moved backwards, but people are just coping on and dealing with things, trains and horses. And I don't think it would be quite that neat in this novel or or in the Waveries. I think there'd be a lot more disruption, sort of like the. Um, the S.M. Sterling novels, but it was almost like pastoral, cozy, even like a like a, like a throwback to our earlier yeah, to cozy the apocalypse. Yeah, cozy, yeah, cozy catastrophe. There's the word. There's the word. Uh, you know what? I'd like to see that take over the slot of paranormal romance or urban fantasy. Cozy catastrophe. <laughs> I'm all for that. Yeah. We, we, support that um you know in, in talking about the war that happens before the book started what you know like and i think that's very important because in in the other adaptations i love seeing how how these things are adapted because then it it's like a contrast between the original and you can see what works better and why it sort of works that way and it, it, it's like a relief map of of um of the original book it shows what's outstanding and what's what's farther away they start in the at the end of the war hmm. um with the commander on his ship and then they drive it back to you know down to new zealand or not new zealand to um australia and then later on in the in the tv movie and this is the 2000 tv movie they they talk about uh, you know, it, it was your bloody idea to start this one in the first place. There's no blaming. There's no blaming um, in in this book. There's tons of blaming in the 2000 adaptation. It's all the Americans' fault. Mm. Um, and there's none in this. And what's interesting is they spread the blame around so much that, oh, yeah, I might go back to something in Albania. Yeah. And that reminded me that this is basically the war the way they've described it being set up it's world war one it's it's the way world war one started as a tiny you know spark yeah turns into a rush fire and then it's a mass conf- conflagration that takes on every part of the world and does you know puts people back in buggies rather than yeah. in their their new cars that they had just bought and it's yeah that's fascinating that you know the 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 it's it's thrown it into that hands. I, I, even though this book is written after World War II, it's a it's a World War One story, you know, in a sense, or post World War One story. Sorry. Well, with it's the underlying premise that every country can afford to buy nuclear weapons. Mm. They're so common and frequent that they're cheap. <laughs> yeah. That's right. There is no non-proliferation treaty in this un- the universe of this book. Yeah, right. and it's interesting because a lot of a lot of uh, foreign policy still hinges on this issue, even though there are so many nations with nukes. Yeah, I look and, at Iran you know, and our policy with Iran and our constant right. fight with them about this. The, that's right. I know you didn't wa- finish watching the nineteen fifty nine movie, 
I'd movie seen just it before. That. I'd seen yeah. it. But I found it interesting that the movie explicitly criticizes the whole idea of mutual assured destruction. There's a whole line about mankind went mad when they thought mm. that weapons they could never be used could be used for defense. And I thought, like, that's pretty provocative for a 59 movie where we were relying on mad on that doctrine. And the movie is explicitly calling out the book doesn't because, as you said, the book goes to this whole everybody has nukes sort of thing. But the movie, the movie goes right at the heart of the whole Cold War paranoia and and skewers it. Um, if we have nukes, we'll be safe. No, you're not. <laughs> it says on the Wikipedia entry that the American government voiced criticism of the book because they thought that the, the threat of nuclear, uh, nuclear war causing human extinction was not, not real. <laughs> and I think... Um, maybe it wasn't real, you know, in, in 1957, but it was probably real by 1959. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I don't think it's any less real now because the nukes haven't gone away. It's just that it was, it was like a, it was sort of an undercurrent of hysteria, but I don't, I'm not sure that this book is, you know, we necessarily have to think about it as a nuke. A nukes book. It's. I think it's very existential. It's. It's. It's about you know how would you behave if you were if you were told, not not you know by a doctor that you're going to be killed in six months. Yeah. Because you know doctors they can be wrong and we can go to other doctors. Although that's part of the issue, right? Is is that people have this idea we just go to another expert and and right. we'll find out get the answer but we want. Yeah. If we had a machine that's right. 100 percent reliable and it tells you when you're going to die and you find out. How are you going to behave? Oh, you're going to stop going to work? Maybe. Some people will. A lot of people apparently are going to start drinking really heavily. Apparently, yeah. Well, how is that different from any other Australian day? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Are you guys familiar with the David Bowie song, Five Years? Mm, No. No. Um, It's it's from uh, the Ziggy Sardis album. It's basically... Mankind's got five years left, and it's kind of a mournful song about people not carry, keeping calm and carrying on, but going mad. Mm. Hmm. The sky wept and told us Earth was surely dying. You broke so down. Yeah, uh, I can't sing. But I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure you can. You can find a clip or whatnot All right. on, we'll on YouTube. Notes. But yeah, it, it's very. It's very much the anti. Keep calm song it's like five years left and there's nothing we can do and people just lose their crap Uh, well i think you know you you lose your crap the first six months and then you're gonna be like okay three and a half more years to go yeah four and a half more years to go i I always wanted to read some proust here's my chance (laughs) (laughs) oh boy yeah but it's funny that is exactly what i would do read proust yes if i had if i knew i had four to five months left that's on my list of things I've always wanted to do. Unless I had the money to travel, and then I would travel. You Except for there's clearly nowhere to travel to. Jenny, this is an unrealistic story. <laughs> five to six months for Proust? That's not you. That's it's, it's, it's for Proust. <sighs> but yeah, there's no, um, there's none of this. Like, you know, you think about the, when the Great Depression hit, and there are stories of you know. Wall Street bankers jumping out of windows to their deaths, you know, just over a financial collapse, not even, you know, a, a complete apocalyptic everyone dies scenario. And there's none of that in this book. There's no, I mean, 
I guess you get to that point with um, John Osborne racing the car, and he's like, well, I'd, I'd like to go this way. <laughs> he couldn't even die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I found that scene in the in the movie very strange. The, they they do go. They just have the one auto race, and Moira and Dwight are there, and and the crashes. I mean, it's not clearly a wet racetrack, but the crashes seem funny. <laughs> people sk- skidding off and crashing. I mean, there's lots of wrecks in the movie, and it, it, it just the way the it's it's shot. It's almost filmed as comedy rather than as tragedy. All these people mm. crashing and crashing and uh, blowing up. It, it was a very strange. I don't know. Maybe I was in a weird place when I was watching it. It just came off very different than in the in the book, where it's just tragic that people, person after person, is dying, and he's trying to get the wheel on to get around the trap because this way you'll get to the Grand Prix. But yeah, the movie plays it very, very differently. Yeah, and even in the book, it's not necessarily comic. But um, Moira, who at the outset you don't you think is going to be the least sort of emotionally connected, Moira seems to be the only one at the race that recognizes the tragedy of it and you know doesn't want to go again uh everyone else you know like oh yeah they crash and they they do their best to kind of revive people but it doesn't seem to be that big a deal i suspect that's a plot device so that moira and dwight can go up go up to uh fishing and they don't have to we don't have to see the another race like the first one so we can just get it over the radio so i think i think he was just maneuvering things so that we didn't have to go through another racing (laughs) sequence in the book and we could just get the results oh yeah oh yeah john osborne won i I keep thinking julian because they changed it to julian and not in the movie for some stupid reason you know that that movie it was pissing me off right from the beginning (laughs) after reading the book and it's because it's like some hollywood guy says okay i'm gonna make this my own and what does he do he changes every fucking number that's what he does. So instead of it's 3,000 bottles of port, it's 2,000 bottles of port. Instead of we have six months to live, we have five and a quarter months to live. And, you know, there's 300 people in Darwin dying of, uh, you know, radiation poisoning. It's 280. It, it, the, the pointless changes is, is so stupid. Now, I understand maybe you need to change the name of the ship. Because you're worried about the legal reasons, you know, that the United States government's going to be mad that they have a ship that's named the Scorpion in dry dock and they're building it. Okay. Um, But pointless changes, it seems like it infected the movie from the beginning. I mean, I don't mind Ava Gardner as Moira, although she's not young and blonde. She's very pretty, but still, it's just like... And but it's like why does that why does that have to be Julian? Why does he have to be Moira's ex lover instead of her cousin? Oh. And on and on and on. Yeah, and uh, I didn't it didn't bother me the first time I watched it, I, but it does it does it, it, the, the the focus does change a lot with with the book. We don't see the crew right. There's a bunch of guys on the ship. They're all officers. Right? Yeah. Uh, we don't see any of the crew. We know that they exist, um, but we don't see them. In the movie, uh, one, a very striking scene near the beginning, 1959 movie, um, they show the street, uh, and I guess it's Melbourne, and they've got uh, bicycles everywhere and carts and mm-hmm. people walking, and, and there's one car. Um, I guess maybe that's one of the opening shots is a guy closing the door in a car, and it just pops back open. It's like an abandoned car. Yeah. And... Uh, in the 2000 adaptation, I think they have the exact same street, um, which is kind of <laughs> cool. 
and they show it in the you know the same scene, but all the uh, abandoned cars are like uh, um, updated. They're not 1950 yeah. cars. Um, in the book, we never see a scene like that. There's no, uh, there's still time, brother. Um, you know, bannered across the, uh, across the, um, the park, yeah, park, mm. and and it. I love novels in that they can do that, and and a movie, it actually, it totally takes you away from, of that proximity to the minds of characters. Yeah. Um, and it turns it into a, a you know, it, it's a, oh, someone was saying it's lookism, right? I guess that's, um, uh, that was Brian. He was talking about how lookism and movies are the ultimate in lookism. Hmm. Well, um, how did this work? You said there was a uh, 2008 radio adaptation. Um, mm. You know, you mentioning the sort of narrow scope and, and all of that, it sounds to me like it would lend itself pretty well to a radio or even a stage play. How did that work? Yeah, the, the radio drama was pretty good. Uh, it was two hours, so it was, you know, jammed in a lot of the stuff that's not in the book. And I, I think, you know, the audiobook was the best way to go because um, in two hours, you don't have the same effect as, you know, uh, it, it still comes back to me. One of the most powerful books I've read since I started SFF Audio was Earth Abides, and it's because of the length. And I, you know, I'm always down on books being too long. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because most books suck, and they, <laughs> they drag on their shit yeah. for too long. Um, but if you're going to write a novel legitimately... Um, do it for the right reasons. And the right reasons is because you've got a point that you need to shape over a long space rather than because you need to fill fill pages. Mm-hmm. And uh, Earth Abides has a message that we've seen in other places, like in the Scarlet Plague and um, other other places. Um, but it it does it in a way that, you know, it gives you time to think about the idea that is there and gives you time to live with that idea Yeah, while stuff is happening. And it doesn't do the stuff happening just so stuff's happening. It all brings right to the point of, okay, and I see now. It's like a um, somebody who's you know experienced a lot of death in their life coming to you and saying, you know, your mom's not doing too well now, son. And it's it's I have something hard to tell you, right? And is someone who's experienced and knows what they're doing, and they they break it to you gently. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's that's what we see in a book like this. It's you know, you know, existence. It's it's not what you think it is, and right. you know when you're gonna die as a species, we're gonna have to figure it out on our own. But you're right; you have no to have enough problems. links. You have to have enough length to build that up so there's a sufficient payoff. Right. Otherwise, it's just sort of... You just don't accept it. You don't yeah. buy it at all. And so in the in the radio adaptation, there's not enough time for that. Okay. Um, it does do the book, but it doesn't feel like it can do the book because it just doesn't have the length. It's only two hours. And it, it, it it's a fine adaptation um, other than that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it form you know in, in the movie version, the two-hour movie version, it feels like a melodrama, and I don't care about anything that's <laughs> on the screen because you know it's it, it seems it's, like it's pointless, and it is pointless, but it seems like it's pointless. In the in the three-hour adaptation, they completely go the other direction. They make it like a like I was saying, you know, there's a 
There's nothing that happens in On the Beach. They don't change a goddamn thing, uh, the book. In the 2000 adaptation, they don't change a goddamn thing, but they try and make you think they're, they're gonna. And late, late in the book, or late in the 2000 adaptation, um, you know, they, they're on this blame game. Uh, you know, yeah, it's the stupid Americans that did it. Oh, man. Um, and, and then uh, one of the officers stands up on, on you know, on his heels and he says, not our captain. He refused the order. <laughs> and, and then we all look at our Amanda Sante and say, Oh, what a, what a hero. But the thing is, is that all happened before the movie started. <laughs> just, oh, right. like, just like every, every goddamn point of action that anyone could do, except, you know, to try and figure out how they're going to die already happened before the, the whole story started. Yeah. I mean, and, I, I kind of like that in the book a little bit. There's that, uh, Jurgensen theory that they're actually going up to investigate that. Oh, it might've subsided and, and they get yeah. there and they're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and and in the in the movie they they play that uh, the 2000 movie they play that up right they mm. say oh it's, it's a huge possibility and the one guy's now 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 and then <laughs> uh, you know they they play it up some more by having a buoy go go up and it does the sensing and it detects nothing <laughs> and then there's well it should detect something there's always background radiation and then everybody's <laughs> like no no it's it's still good right so they try and make it seem like there's I mean essentially nothing happens in the in in any of the adaptations mm-hmm. and it can't because that's the whole point of the book is you know it all happened before. Yeah. You got cancer 6 months ago. You can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. You're going to die as a species. On a happy note, I thought the narration of the audiobook was excellent. It was. It was. The, the version I, I gave you, I think, was pretty... Um, Simon, Simon, Simon Preble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the recording was from tape, so it, it sounded yeah. very um, rough. Yeah, the narration was very good. It was. It yeah, really was. same guy we did in 1984. It's like, hey, I recognize his voice. <laughs> yeah. Another hey. happy book. Yeah. <laughs> another another happy book, but he, again, he, 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 does, he does the characters well. He does... He's a really excellent narrator. He's mm-hmm. perfect for this. He, he, there's no he, audio. He's English, right? Abides, there? There's no English characters in the book. They're all uh, Australian and American. But yeah, he, I think he, the admiral he, English be. dignity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's an implied Australian. There's an applied Englishman that we never see. The RAF pilot that they that uh, they had brought to the house and went crying. Oh right. <laughs> I, yeah, I I think it's interesting that Neville Shoot was. Uh, uh, Englishman, and he's chosen to set, you know, his his best book maybe in Australia with no English characters. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> sorry, Jenny, myself... you've been quiet. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm thinking about this book that I once had to record in audio for a visually impaired student. It used to be part of my job, so I yeah. know the book very well. <laughs> Man's Search for Meaning. By Victor, Victor Frankel. Frankel. Yeah. Do you guys know this book? Oh, what's about? I know about it. I have never read it. Okay. What is well, it about? <laughs> he survived some Nazi death camps, including Auschwitz. And the book is kind of about, it kind of argues, I'm, I'm summarizing based on the publisher summary here, but um, he argues that we can't avoid suffering, but we can choose how to cope with it, mm. find meaning in it, and move forward with renewed purpose. It's known as logotherapy. Um, that meaning in life comes from the discovery and pursuit of what 
means something to us personally. So not pleasure, but mm. meaningful living. I don't know. I was thinking about these people at the end and how they chose to just live their normal, boring lives, mm-hmm. which sounds really judgmental. Mm. And then I thought, well, maybe that's where they personally had the meaning in their lives, though, you know? Yeah. So maybe they kind of go along with his whole thing, you know, because there's that whole thing that they could have gone farther south, even farther south than Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still Phillip Island south of there. There's still New Zealand, um, possibly Antarctica, right? Mm-hmm. But then in the end, dying at home seemed like it made more sense. They they well, were comfortable there. You, if you got cancer in six months, would you want to go die in Hawaii? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Until you start feeling bad, right? That's right. the moment. And where then you, you want to be at home, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's the small, small little that things. Book, I don't know. I just kept thinking about that book throughout our conversation. That book came out in '46 in German and came out in '59, which is a couple of years after. But it's it seems like it's in English. It came out in the United States in 1959, so it was. Yeah, so it probably postdated Schutz's book. Yeah, for him, for um, him, his own reading. Unless he read uh, German, which is possible. Possible. Yeah, possible. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway. it, it's funny, the logotherapy, it, I mean, it has it right in its name, right? Is is the logo, is the symbol, mm-hmm. uh, but also logic. Um, Word, yeah, logos. Word. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's funny. This is this book is kind of a logotherapy. I was really, I was thinking it would be a good book to give to someone who's, hey, you've got cancer, here's on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Congratulations. It, it, it may sound a little ghoulish of me to say this, but I wonder if Jay Lakes read this. Oh, recently. wow. Read it recently. Yeah, good question. Because he's got, I forget what kind sorry, of. Sorry, he sorry, sorry. If you hear this, Jay, sorry for bringing it up, but it well, came sure to mind when I was reading. He's dying it. of cancer. I'm he's yeah, pretty, but, he's but, vocal about it. I mean, he's, um, yeah, he writes about it. Uh, he's not out buying pogo sticks for his, his <laughs> wait, he is. I don't know. No, he's still publishing novels, man. He's still. Full steam ahead, so as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, it's I have the feeling that when someone's dying and they know it, it's possibly easier for them to come to terms with it than the people around them. Mm, maybe. But in this situation, Everyone's everyone is so having to face yeah. it together. So you don't even have to worry about the people that you're leaving behind, which I think is part of the grief that people go through when they are dying younger than they're mm. supposed to. But it's funny, they yeah, do but, uh, worry about it. At least it. you have the comfort. You have the comfort that, you know, the species will go on. Yeah. They, they, well, I think, did someone, was it in the book? It said the human adventure. Hmm. Right? The human adventure. The human adventure is just beginning. I think that's the, I think that's the, the tagline for Star Trek V, which is not a, oh, <laughs> not a good way to go. So it's the, the odd number of Star Trek that are the bad ones. And we just about killed Star Trek. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> So, 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 have any of you ever read or watched Rebecca, the by Daphne du Maurier, the Alfred Hitchcock movie? No. I've read it. No. It's it, it's a story about a, a new young wife for this widower, and as she's trying to adapt to life as his as her as his new wife, he she's basically the the old the old wife's influence and memories and legacy keeps pressing in on her in the house that all the servants respond 
spawn to, oh, Rebecca wouldn't have wanted that. And it, it, she just seems haunted by it. I was thinking mm-hmm. about that in terms of Moira, Moira Dwight, and, and Dwight's wife. Mm-hmm. And in the sense that Moira is, in a sense, the heroine of the, of the novel in that mm-hmm. she's trying to insert herself into, the li- into Dwight's life, whereas Dwight's wife is, and Dwight's wife's, and Dwight's family are basically very much real in a, in a ghostly, ghostly nebulous sense and influencing everything he does. And she's, <laughs> and her, her love of Dwight is kind of twisted and blocked by, mm-hmm. by that, by that, by, by that ghostly uh, influence. I was just thinking like, totally. this reminds me of Rebecca. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting connection. Just on, on that note. She's, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I think she said, Moira said something like, if, if, his wife hadn't, if his wife hadn't have been dead, I would use every trick in the book to, to get right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is funny because, you know, <laughs> she is dead. <laughs> so yeah. now, you're, now you're not going to hurt her? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, just... On the characters in general, I think the book works because the characters do develop, or rather, some of them develop, some of them don't develop. But they, none of them are quite what you'd expect. I mean, you know, at the beginning, you think Mary is going to kind of be the strong, um, supportive one. She's, you know, she's seems sensitive, and it's like, oh, well, you got to show Dwight a good time, and and Moira is the one who's kind of buried in her in her um, brandy and and all that, and. and the characters really do, uh, they change in one way or another or reveal themselves in interesting ways. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I, I think that uh, in, in general, the, Mary and Moira clearly go through the, through the most sort of uh, changes, whereas, mm-hmm. whereas, the, whereas the men are much... Uh, I don't, I'm not, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that because Dwight's little obsession with his uh, pogo <laughs> stick. Mm-hmm. Pete, Peter, though, Peter seems pretty, has a pretty good head on his shoulders. Yeah, he does. Though, throughout the entire, entire book. I mean, he's, he's, he's our, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do what I've gotta do. Okay, I gotta, yeah. I, I just gotta, okay, I'm gonna be a service liaison officer. I'm gonna support my wife. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get these pills for her in advance, even though she doesn't wanna deal with it because I'm gonna deal with it. He's the, he's the, He's the steely-eyed, yes. clear-looking one out of the whole bunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not trying to kill himself in a car like John Osborne <laughs> is. He's, 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 he's just, he's just going to do his job and, and be, damned, be damned if this radiation is coming or not. I, I've, I've, got, I've got work to do. I, I like that Osborne, he, doesn't, he wants to, you know, he thinks it wouldn't be so bad to kill himself in the car wreck. But he doesn't want to damage the Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Osborne's interesting. Do we? Because you know, we meet him and, and Moria from the beginning. It's like, oh, that guy is trouble. Um, but we never quite see that. Because when she said that, I thought you know he's going to sabotage the sub or go nuts on the sub or something was going to more oh. uh, dramatic yeah. was going to happen. So it, I mean, there is a history there because they're distantly related. But I don't think we ever get explained to us why there's that. She has that intense dislike of him. Well, the the uh, you can't trust the the, <laughs> the, the scientist. 
You can't no, you can't trust the author because he's got this very. That's the one English thing about this book is it's it's very very English, right? Everything you know, uh, we're all going to die, and uh, would you like a cup of tea? (laughs) (laughs) Everything's you know, all the things that should be overstated are understated, and all things that are uh, understated are overstated. So, you know, he's not trouble, right? He's he's basically the opposite. He just likes fast cars. and that makes him dangerous. <laughs> right. Uh, but in the, in the tooth, I don't remember the 1959 adaptation. Oh, it was, um, it was the dancer. What's his name? Fred Astaire. Yeah. The really old character for what it was supposed to be. Wow. Uh, the actor was supposed to be, I think, it, uh, not the actor. The character is in his 20s, uh, I think. Mm. And in the, um, in the 2000 adaptation, it was uh, Brian Brown. And he's the loud Australian, and he, you know, he's much more confrontational. He, he is trouble compared to, they make him a lot of trouble mm-hmm. uh, compared to any any of the other adaptations or the original book. Um, but again, that is for the drama of the of the 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 idea we're going to get something actually happening. There's always a potential for a, a fist fight when he's in the mm-hmm. room. There's no fist fights in this book. No. Nobody even is killed on screen. No, no. nobody changes anything. They they can only just you know find ways to die. That's the only thing that, that they can choose is their way of dying. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that is the uh, I mean I guess that's part of existentialism, right? You you make your own peace with death, and then you find out how you want to do it. Well, to bring the other <laughs> F of SFF audio into this, it makes me think of uh, Denethor in, in Lord of the Rings and, and mm. sort of mistakenly, mm. mistakenly hopeless, in that case, outlook on things. And he's like, I'm just going to go in the way that seems best to me. You guys should all do that, too. Doesn't he to, yeah, doesn't he have like a, a kill pact, like let's all kill ourselves together sort of thing? In the movie, they make more of that. In the book, it's just he wants to die on his pyre and his son, he thinks his son Faramir, uh, who's been you know shot by a poison arrow, as bad fever he thinks Faramir's gonna die he's already yeah. burning up on the insides well we might as well burn together that yeah but that that is like a, a it's it's like it is yeah uh, and it's funny because i was thinking about how um you know these items that he's collecting for his his children he's never even gonna see yeah. again his wife he's never gonna see um it it was you know it's the egyptian tomb filled with mm-hmm. know, tomb goods yeah tomb goods yeah and we're, you know, we can't get away from that. The, these people that we live around. I was saying to one of my students, you know, I, I love the word tomb and all the synonyms for tomb. And, and so when we're reading uh, for vocab, um, uh, one of my little things is, and I'll say, and can you guess what this word means? And, and they'll say tomb. <laughs> yes, the sepulcher. Uh, right. And, and, um, and then. Uh, they said, why are you obsessed with tombs, Jesse? And I said, well, when I go, I'm going to get a big screen TV. It's just no bathroom because I'm not going to need one. But I'm going to get a big screen TV, you know, a few books, a nice bed, and, and I'll live in there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty nice. And um, we, can't get a, we can't get away from this. We can't get away from the idea that we're, we're, we're even when we know we're going to die, we can't even get away from the idea that we're actually going to be gone. Yeah, we think of how we will be after, which is it makes no sense, and that's why this book is so interesting. Mm-hmm. 
I think even for the mainstream, like it, it is a mainstream book and it became mainstream interesting because it's the one thing we're all connected to. And it's the perfect it, balance of uh, of mainstream and SFF for me. I mean, I, I think about this and like, what is the balance in most books? Um, you know, I, I know I like hard science fiction and I like you know, epic fantasy, but um, for the books that are really successful and cross that boundary, there seems to be a balance. Um, Neil Gaiman strikes it a lot, and I think that's why he's been so successful. Of you know, what is mm. just enough SFF to sort of engage the brain, but not so much that it alienates readers. And this really mm-hmm. hits home on that. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no SF tech at all, right? There's, it's only the existential thoughts and the, and the one little thing of thinking of the future of a civilization that isn't ours. Mm-hmm. But it's enough. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Good morning. <laughs> Who's been <laughs> So, um, you don't, uh, don't know. Like <laughs> it's in the book. Oh. Uh, the wife is singing it as uh, as uh, right before they killed their baby. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Who's been polishing? Stab, stab, stab. Right. <laughs> no, they didn't stab her. It was much more. Actually, you know, it's it's kind of um, she doesn't want to see her baby, right? Because her baby's 